been looking at the Exodus, of course, that's the name of the book, and exactly that's describing what happens in this. And when we get to the end of chapter 14, the Exodus itself is truly over in a sense. They have gotten out of Egypt, they have crossed the Red Sea, and God now has destroyed the armies of Pharaoh and put them to an end. So his, their oppressors and their enemies have been dealt with, and they're on the other side of this. Free from Egypt, armies and oppressors dealt with and done. And so redemption, in that sense, has taken place. The exodus, if you will, is finished. And so you kind of you hear, and, and we think of the exodus, and rightfully so. We're starting, the, we're starting the wilderness wanderings, if you will. We're starting the journey toward the promised land. But the exodus itself, having been taken out of Egypt, saved from bondage and slavery and captivity, now he has already finished and dealt with it. And so you kind of come to a place at the end of chapter 14 where they summarize what has taken place. There's a summary given here by Moses about what has happened. And if you remember, there's just a couple things that, that kind of became the theme running throughout. The big thing is that the Lord was going to make himself known. If you remember, that was it. The Lord said, I will now make myself known. And so, so he says that, and, and remember, Moses... He makes himself known to Moses with the bush that's burning and not consumed, and he tells him his name, I am who I am, Yahweh, becomes that covenant name he, he tells to Moses, and so he identifies himself to Moses, and he's known now to Moses. And Moses goes to Egypt to tell the people, here's who has come for us. God has come for us to, to take us back. Remember the promises of Genesis chapter 12, 15, 17, how God will pull his people out of the bondage of slavery and bring them back to a promised land. He has now come. Moses makes him known to them in that way. And then he goes into Pharaoh and he says to Pharaoh, uh, God said to, to let the people go. Y'all remember the song. God said, let the people go. And so as he goes in to let the people go, Pharaoh responds with, remember what did Pharaoh say? I don't know the Lord. I don't know your God. And from that point on, God's like, you're going to get to know me. And so God makes himself known to Pharaoh. And he makes himself known to Pharaoh by exposing the worldview of Pharaoh and all of the Egyptians as false. He one step by another dismantles the gods of Egypt, demonstrating that there is no God like him. He is supreme. He is over all. So with the plagues, he demonstrates that all that you are trusting in is false. I am the true God alone. There is no other. He makes himself known. And by the time it's over, Pharaoh responds with, you are the Lord's. He calls his covenant name Yahweh. You are the Lord's. Go, right? Now, Pharaoh has second thoughts. He realizes his whole workforce was lost. He realizes nobody's going to make bricks even without straw. So he goes after them to get them again and bring them back. But by that time, the Lord makes himself known again as the protector, the provider, the guide for his people, as the pillar of fire by night and pillar of cloud by day shows up for his people to know that he is with them. For God didn't save them just to turn them loose from Egypt. What we find out is that God saved his people so he can be with his people. He wants to dwell with 
them. And really from this point on, that's exactly where the, where the passage begins here in just a minute. How can a holy God dwell with an unholy people? The first stop along the way is going to be to Mount Sinai where God says, here's how I can dwell. Here are the commandments of what it means to be a follower of me. Remember in Exodus chapter 20, when he gives the 10 commandments, the 10 commandments begin by the words that say, I am the Lord, your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. In other words, I've already redeemed you. Now here's how you live with me. Here's how you dwell with me. And so God is going to be with his people. He's made himself known. And that's what you get at the end of chapter 14. With the, with the waters coming back on the Egyptians, it says in verse 29, the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on the right hand and to the left, thus in verse 30, 31 here, thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. God saved his people and dealt with his enemies. God saved his people and dealt with the oppressors. By the way, that's going to be the theme throughout all of scripture. I mean, that's Revelation 19 and 20, right? In Revelation 19, we see God dealing with his enemies finally and completely by casting them forever into an eternal judgment. And then in chapter 20, we see him bringing his people into the true promised land that they will dwell in forever, the true land flowing with milk and honey where he will be with his people. You see those two things. God will deal with his enemies and he will save and redeem his people. You see it here in chapter 14. In fact, this exodus really is going to be used throughout Scripture, be referred to over and over again. The Lord will identify himself. Y'all know how he identified himself to Moses and to others. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs where the promises were made. I'm the God of the one. I'm the one who made the promises to the patriarchs, God, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Later, he's going to say over and over again, I think it's 89 times in the Old and New Testament, he's going to say, I'm the one who brought you out of bondage of slavery in Egypt. He identifies himself as the one who redeemed them through the Exodus. That's how important this is. He saves his people. It becomes that marker. It becomes that identity for them. And then he also judges, judges his enemies. Verse 31 Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. We see that Israel sees what God has done, right? So they're seeing God's actions. They're seeing God's glory. They're seeing his power. They're seeing these things. In that sense, it's given the idea that, that Israel is recognizing and knowing, not just seeing it with their eyes, but they're perceiving, as Isaiah would say later. They're perceiving who God is and what he's done, and they have the proper response. They believe and they fear. They believe and they fear been working through this myself this week, this Sunday. I'm preaching in Acts chapter, end of chapter four, beginning of chapter five. And so we get to deal with Ananias and Sapphira being struck dead, right? And it says at the end of chapter four, there was great grace to all of the people. And then in verse five of chapter five, there's great fear amongst all the people. And scripturally, those two things go together. 
Somehow we, we lose sight of this, but when we believe in the Lord and who he is, his might, his glory, his majesty, his power, we believe in that. We all, that, that brings with it a great fear, if you will, as the scripture says, for the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So it's foolish to think that we can dominate the Lord. We can tell him what to do. He's not a genie in your pocket. So as you can pull him out, rub him, and he give you what he wants at that time. He's not one that sits at your beck and call. He is the Lord God Almighty, ruler of heaven and earth, and we are his people, and he is to be feared. Jesus, God, is not just the man upstairs. He's not really your homeboy either, although that sounds cool. He, he, he's none of those things. He is King of kings and Lord of lords, and there is no throne that can touch him. There is no authority that can stop him. There is nothing that can stand in his way. He has never taken a loss. He's undefeated. That's who he is. So we approach him with a humility about ourselves, knowing that there is nothing in us that deserves the right to even be in his presence. If we are in his presence, it's because he has brought us in. He has done what it takes to get us there. It's his work, not ours. So we have every reason to come with him with a humble fear as we approach him. Not, not thinking that we can dominate him. Not thinking that we can tell him what to do. But we come humbly before him with a fear. And that's where wisdom is. That's where wisdom comes in. And that fear is met with great grace, as we'll see, because you believe in who he is. Because here are the, here are the Israelites, and, and wouldn't you be mindful of the fact that you just watched, you just took part in this great drama that is unfolding? I mean, imagine the movie made about this lasted like four hours. Y'all remember what I'm talking about? So imagine that day as it unfolds, you know, of this drama that is unfolding before them. Imagine this pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud leading them. And then as the sea parts, just recognizing that, as the sea parts, and then that pillar of cloud and fire turns, it says, and goes behind them so as to protect them from the enemy of God. And so they walk through on dry ground, it says only to turn around and watch the Egyptians chase them and see the sea close back in to destroy them. The judgment of God is there. The fear of God, the believing in God. So what's the proper response then? If they believe in God and they fear him, there's another part to that response. And that's what verse chapter 15 gives us. They believe in God, they feared God, and they worshiped him. The proper response in believing in God and who he is and what he's done and seeing him in his power and his majesty, the proper response for his people is to worship, is to worship, to cast upon him worth. How much is he worth? That's what we see here. And so they begin to sing. They begin to sing. Singing. This is the first time we get really... The song in the scriptures where we see it attached to worship. Why is that? Because God now has made himself known. And for the first time, the Israelites will let it know that they know who he is. That's what this song becomes response. By the way, all of worship is response, right? Worship is a response to what we believe and what we fear and know about God. It's a response to that. 
It's response to who he is and what he's done. Every time you have worship, there's always elements to it. You worship what is past. You see what he has done. You see what he is doing. You see what he is going to do. Worship entails the story of God as we respond to his fulfilling of his promises, his power, his majesty, his salvation and redemption. We're responding to who he is. And what seemingly is right is the one of the ways, if not the primary way oftentimes we see of worship, is they begin to sing. Singing is a part of the, the, the tradition as we look at it through Scripture. I mean, the Psalms is the largest book. Singing is what it was. David sang. We find the Israelites singing in the promised land. We find Moses singing here. I tell some people all the time, I like to say this, because you find in church sometimes. Now, some of y'all may say, I don't like the music. I don't know the song. At our church, we got three different services with three different styles, so you can't hand me that. I'm working hard to get you what you want. You know what I mean? And at the same time, they come in here and they sit down. So we have some men that be quiet. Let me go ahead and talk to y'all men real quick. Let me go ahead and say this to you. If you don't like the scene, you might not like heaven. Because what do we find in Revelation? They're singing constantly. Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. They sing they sing over and over again in response to what they see and what they know and what they fear even in front of them. They're singing. Singing is a response. So if you don't like to sing in response in worship, maybe you haven't experienced the majesty and glory and power of God. Maybe you haven't experienced what that means. Maybe you don't realize what you used to be in the bondage of sin and death and hell and what you now are. And it has nothing to do with your power, your strength, or what you have done. It's got everything to do with a God who saved you out of darkness, brought you back from death to life. He could have left you there, but nah, he sent your grandma after you to pray for you and to call you to repentance and faith. He sent a preacher after you, a friend after you. The hound dog of heaven. Y'all know what I'm talking about? That's what they called the Holy Spirit back in the day. The hound dog of heaven sniffed you out through friends, through family, through whoever it may be, to call you to salvation to yourself. Ultimately, you can take no credit for the fact that you are in heaven. If you did, you have every right to boast. But as Paul says, we got no boasting going on here. For even the faith by which we exercise is a gift from God. All of it is his. And not only has he saved you, he's going to keep you, the scripture says. Not only has he saved you, he's going to make sure you get home. I don't know. I'm going to give you all a little bit of Ananias and Sapphira because I got all kinds of stuff to say. I don't have long to talk about it on Sunday. And I may bring it back up. If I do, don't say anything. But even in that, how does that look? If you lie to the Holy Spirit, you see the consequences of it, right? If you lie. So how does that story serve us? That story serves us as a big billboard on the highway of our life. Before you, you driving down the highway and you may be thinking, I can lie, I can sneak this through, I can do what I want to do. And then you see this big sign, remember Ananias and Sapphira, I better not lie. I better not do it. You know remember? That's the same way it's used in the book of Hebrews. Whenever it's talking about holding on to things of this world, it just simply says, remember Lot's wife? Yeah, better not do that. 
Better keep going. Those stories serve as guides for us, signs for us to remind us that we got to stay faithful to these things. That's what the Exodus does for the people of Israel. Before you get it sideways, remember, I'm the one that saved you. I'm the one that called you out. I'm the one that went and got you when you were lost in the middle of Egypt and could not save yourself. I'm the one that split the sea wide open. That's me. I'm that one. And the only proper response that Israel has is led by their leader, Moses, here to say, let's sing of God's glory. Let's sing and worship him, for he is worthy. He is worthy. And he begins to sing. Moses and the people of Israel sing this song to the Lord saying, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. It's a response, a God-centered song of response. I'll sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he's thrown into the sea. He's describing exactly what they just watched. Thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. This is the God who's been faithful from the beginning. This is the God who's faithful now. This is the Lord. And remember, verse 3 is important. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. In other words, the Lord is who's fought for us. We owe all of it to him. But see what they say? The Lord is his name. This is the first time Israel, we've seen it with Moses before. This is the first time Israel proclaims the name of the Lord. In other words, we've come to this place where God said, I'm going to make myself known. And, and Pharaoh learned who he was, found out. He was God who would judge him because of his sinfulness and position. But now the Israelites, they know who he is too. He's known to them as the God who redeems them and fights for them. He's known to them as the God who redeems them and fights for them. So that theme of God making himself known comes here to the full circle of it after the exodus, after he, they pulled him out, and now they say, they sing together, the Lord is his name, Yahweh is his name. We know him. He's our God. He's our God. As they go through this, you'll find a couple things. One, really the first 12 chapters, uh, first 12 chapters, the first three verses serve as kind of that introduction. The Lord is his name. We know him. They praise God because of his glory, because he's triumphant, triumphed gloriously. They praise God because he's personal to them. He is their God, and he has brought their salvation. They know him. This is my God. I will praise him. And they praise God because he keeps his promises. He was the God of my fathers. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And remember, those three are the ones to whom God made the promises to, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so he's the God who keeps his promises. He's the God who is personal. He's our God. He's not just a God out there. He's our God. He's the God that rules and reigns for us. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. So we see this God-centered response comes back to where they sing for his glory. They sing because they know him, and they sing because he keeps the promises. And then in verse 4, really running through, running through uh, verse 12, you get this victory accomplished idea. 
Pharaoh's chariots and his host, he came into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. By the way, this is quite common for oral societies, right? Uh, we, we know that the print and press hadn't been invented when Moses was writing this. I don't know if y'all know that, but that came a little bit later with Eli Whitney. Um, and so we recognize, was that the cotton gin? Whatever. Gutenberg, that's who it was. Gutenberg, print and press, 1490-something. So we came and recognized this. So oftentimes you would put into song your stories so you could pass them down easier, if you will. You would put them into songs so you could sing about them, and they would become that. Uh, one of the things nowadays, and some of this may be too, too young for some of y'all, some of y'all may be too old for, but if you've seen or read the Lord of the Rings trilogies, y'all ever read those? Uh, or you, Now they got movies, so you don't even have to read the books anymore. You see what I'm saying? But, but you should. But you have that, and, and they oftentimes sing in those movies, and, and Tolkien is capturing that idea. You tell your stories by singing about it. So you sing those songs together, and in those songs, you tell the story of what's going on. That way, you pass it down, and you remember songs. You remember how it goes. You remember your stories. That's why so many of us find the songs of our youth, even the Christian songs of our youth, precious to us, right? They find them precious to us because that's what we sang when we were young. And not only are they worshipful to God, but they kind of tell our story of where I'm from and, and who I am. My home church sang Victory in Jesus every single Sunday night, every one of them. And so I can't sing Victory in Jesus without thinking about that time and that place with those people. Y'all know what I'm talking about. So not only does it like we praise God for his victory that we have and how we heard an old, old story, that works all kind of ways, doesn't it? Not only do we do that, but it reminds us, it kind of tells our story. So we all have affections for those songs we grew up with, right? And so don't get mad at somebody because they're a little bit younger and they got affections for other songs because you got affections for your songs. They got affections for their songs. Don't get frustrated with them because that's part of our stories. Well, that's what you have here. They're telling the story and they pass this on to tell the story and tell the story. So that's why you see them recounting what happened. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone, like a stone, your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up, the floods stood up in a heap, the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. What he's saying here is not only did you do this in your judgment, right? It didn't even take much. It was just simply the blast of your nostrils. Don't try it right now to blast out your nostrils. But that's not hard work, right? At just the blast of your nostrils, Lord, the sea piled up. In other words, this wasn't even a big thing for you. You handled them. You took care of them. And before you go, man, gosh, that's kind of harsh, right? That's kind of harsh that the Lord would do that to the Egyptians and pile them up. Well, you let them come running at you with a bunch of chariots looking to kill you, destroy you, or capture you again and see how harsh you would think it would be if he conquered them, right? Well, oftentimes, that's what we have, by the way, in our Christian context in, in, in our modern times, we have too low of a view of the devil and his work in our life. We have too low of a view of what he's trying to do. He's trying to steal, kill, and destroy us. And so we rejoice when God deals with the enemies of his people. 
Not in the sense that we're rejoicing in their death. We're rejoicing in God's glory that is seen that he is righteous and he takes care of his own. He watches over them. So they're rejoicing that God here has has ended their enemies and, and watched it. They just watched them be defeated before their eyes. They didn't have to lift a finger. And all God had to do was blast his nostrils. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw out my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord? Among the gods, who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. You stretched out your hand, the earth swallowed them. There is not one who can match the power of God. He is the Lord, and there's no one like him. There's no one like him. One of the great beliefs, one of the great beliefs or the great teachings of Scripture is that there is, as I've said before, no rival for our God. There is no rival. There is no threat to his power and to his majesty. So here they rejoice in this. They see that victory that has been accomplished, and and then they turn to what's coming, this victory that is coming ahead in verse 13. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm, and they are still as a stone. To your people, O Lord, pass by. To the people pass by whom you have purchased. You'll bring them in, plant them on your mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. He says, Lord, not only have you taken care of our enemies past, but you have taken care of our enemies future. By demonstrating your power, by demonstrating who you are, there is no threat to us. Whether it is Moab, whether it is Edom, whether it is Canaan. By the way, all of those names that could be the enemies of God that live in Canaan, we learned where they came from in Genesis, didn't we? We learned that Edom comes from Esau. We learned that Canaan comes from the son of Ham who, 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 uh, who did a deed there with his, with his father. We've learned all of those things and how they come from. These, these people come from sins of those who came before them. We learned all of that. And so as he lists these out, they're the enemies of God's people. And so he says, you, you've shown yourself, not only do the Egyptians know, the world knows now who you are and what you have done. But I want to draw our attention there to verse 13. I love what he does, and it's kind of hitting on the theme of what we say, what I've been saying. He, he, he talks about the judgment that comes. You stretch out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. In just these two verses, you see the love of God juxtaposed, which is a big word, and big words make people think you're smart. But you see that juxtaposition of the love of God and the wrath of God, right? Those two things go together. It all depends on who you are as to what you receive. It all depends on who you identify as, as to which comes to you, right? Think about this. Let me see if I can put this together. 
flip in your Bibles over to uh, Hosea. I think this is right. So y'all don't get mad at me if something happens here and it's not quite right. Hosea chapter 11. Hosea chapter 11, verse 10. God's people, if y'all remember the story of Hosea, it's a lot to get into right now, but, but, but Hosea is told to marry a prostitute named Gomer who he knows would be unfaithful. God uses their marriage as a picture of Israel's unfaithfulness to God, and God pronounces his judgment on them. But at the same time, he says, though I'm going to judge you and discipline you because of your sinfulness and unfaithfulness, I'm not going to divorce you. In fact, I'm going to reconcile with you and bring you back to myself. Incredible story. In fact, in chapter 3, you find after, after Gomer has... Uh, committed adultery and had three children, not with Hosea, you find her sold and up for auction as a slave. In chapter 3, she's naked and been put out for auction for all the men to bid on her. And now you find the humility of Hosea to walk up and say, I'll take her, she's my wife. And you see that beautiful picture and that's exactly what the Lord does for his people who've been unfaithful. He brings them back and says, I'll take her. They're mine. And so ultimately you see that. So in chapter 11, he's dealing with this, right? He's dealing with this restoration of it all. So the Lord's love for Israel, even though Israel's been unfaithful, he still loves them. And he says in verse 10, they shall go after the Lord he will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt, like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. In other words, it picks up on this language of a roaring lion. Y'all remember that kind of flows throughout the scriptures. You find it in first in Genesis chapter 49, whenever Jacob blesses his son Judah, and he says, Judah, you are like a lion's cub. And then we see how the Lord is used as this roaring lion throughout until finally Revelation chapter 5. Y'all remember Revelation 5? He says, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. And he says, Jesus is the fulfillment of this lion, right? And so you have this picture going throughout of the lion, God coming as a lion and roaring. Now, I don't know about y'all, but I, 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 have y'all ever been in the presence of a lion when it roared? Have y'all ever been there? Anybody done that? Not on TV. You can't use TV. And y'all, I don't care if you got surround sound. It's not the same. And so ultimately, me and, and, and Allison were with Wilds. He, we were, he was our firstborn, and we'd take him to the zoo. You know, and when you got your firstborn, you try to do all kinds of stuff with kids. By the time you got four, you just try to survive. So the firstborn, we're going and doing stuff, and we're out and out and about, and we go to the zoo, and we're at the zoo in Louisville, Kentucky. And I'm sitting there, and I take Wilds, and I'm standing him up on the fence, and, and, and he couldn't fall into the lion's pit. We were far enough away. But they were about from here to that camera from me, right? And they were sitting there sleeping. We got there early. It was the morning. And when that lion woke up, I don't know if this is common practice for lions because I hadn't been out there with them too much. But when the lion woke up, he turned and he just let out a roar. I'm talking. And when he did, Wilds' face melted off and he started crying. You know what I'm saying? Oh, my 
doing? I got scared myself. Allison's ducking. She doesn't know what's going on. It was terrifying. And I got to thinking to myself, if there wasn't a big, huge valley-like thing in front of me that he can't get through and a fence right here, I would think my life's over. Because when that thing roars, it will melt you away, right? Well, that's what the picture's giving here. Hard for us because we don't often live with lions running wild around us. But when the lion comes into the field and roars, he's letting everybody know I'm here. And here it says, when he steps into the field and roars, his children go, dad's here. And they come running. That roar to his children is not terrifying, but comforting, right? It doesn't make them fear. They're not running in fear. It lets them know that he loves them. He's putting all the other enemies on notice. I'm here. Don't, don't try to mess with my kids. He's putting everybody on notice that, that he's in the place. And if you are one of his enemies, your life is in danger right now. That's what the lion is doing. In Hosea, that's how he comes after his people. The Lord roars. In other words, he shows his power. He shows his majesty. He shows his glory. And I'm telling y'all, when you got saved from your sins the first time, it's because you caught a glimpse of the majesty and power and beauty and salvation of God, right? You heard just a little bit of that roar, just a little bit of that roar, and you said, that's, that's who I need. That's where I got to go. And you came running to him, trembling like a little lion's cub, uh, uh, fearful and trembling like a dove in the hand of its captor, it says. But, but if you can, look over with me to Joel. Joel 3.16. That's not John 3.16, but Joel 3.16. Oh, Lord, let me find it. Don't tell me. Good grief, I'm a preacher. I just, I just turned too many pages. Joel 3.16. The Lord here in Joel pronounces the judgment for the nations that are his enemies. So in Joel 3.16, talk about a judgment, it says this. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people a stronghold to the people of Israel. You see both of those things. You see how the Lord roars and the heavens and earth quake at his roar. But to his people, to his people it means safety. Or, or if you flip over to Amos, just the next book, chapter 1, the Lord roars, verse 2, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. In other words, when the Lord roars, his judgment comes. People weep, they mourn, they wither. Have y'all ever read the book of Revelation chapter 6? When judgment comes, they climb into the caves, it says. When the Lord roars in his coming, they climb into the caves and they say what? Let the caves fall on me, for that would be better than to face that lion. So ultimately, 
The enemies of God, when hearing the roar of the lion, when confronted with the majesty, power, and glory of God, flee in fear. But those who are his children run like cubs. Isn't it interesting how the same roar can both cause the enemies of God to spread and at the same time draw in the people of God to safety and a stronghold. That's exactly what we see here in Exodus 15. That's what they're celebrating. The Lord has roared. Pharaoh and his armies have seen the majesty and power of God and he has dealt with the enemies. And to his people, that is love. His loving kindness has been on display for us. His loving kindness has been on display. And so you see that here as they sing. You have led, you stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. And so what I've said is it matters what your identity is as to how you understand the roar and majesty and power of God. If you're one of his children, there is no greater sound than you can hear or know than the roar and majesty and power of God. If you're one of his enemies, there is no greater fear that you should have anywhere than the roar and the majesty and the power of God. For his people, they draw him in. This is why they say, come, all of you, come. The invitation is like, why would you not want to join in with this people who, who know the majesty and power of God and hear, hear him roar as a friend to them, as a father who brings in his children? Here, the Israelites are worshiping God because he loved them enough to deal with their enemies. And in this moment, you see the love and the wrath of God coming together. In the same roar. And now are the, the nations are on notice. There is no other God. It ends in verse 18 looking forward to saying, The Lord will reign forever and ever. You will bring them out in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, Lord, which your hands have established, and you will reign forever and ever. God has saved his people so that he can be with his people. Just read Revelation 20, 21, 22. Just read that part. God wants to be with us. Nothing really should blow your mind. I mean, there's a lot of things in the scripture that blow our mind. It should blow our mind that the God of the universe, the creator and maker of the heavens and earth that breathed this stuff out, spoke it into existence, blew out his nostrils and ends his enemies, that same God wants to dwell with you forever. And he's done everything it takes to make that happen. He's done it all. Everything needed to make it happen, he has done. And what you'll see over the next few chapters is you'll see what it takes to dwell with God. You're going to have ten commandments, right? Then after that, you got the case law of how you handle all these things. Then you go through Leviticus, and you got all those laws. And you know why all of those things are there, right? Y'all know what Leviticus is. That's where all of y'all stopped your year reading plan this year. Y'all know what I'm talking about. You got all you get through Leviticus, and you got all this stuff. You're like, why is all of this here? That's what it takes for a sinful people to dwell with a holy God. That's what it takes. And in a moment, in a moment, 
We recognize all of that when Jesus himself, the son of God, comes and hangs on a tree on our behalf. Because there, the law was finally kept. Kept for good because he took it upon himself. There, he redeemed us. That's where love and wrath will finally and ultimately meet and intertwine together in such a way so as forever those who are his will reign with him, the scripture says, and those who are his enemies will be punished in an eternal punishment forever because of what will take place when the love of wrath, love and wrath of God meet on the cross. In his son. He bears that wrath for us. You see, all of Exodus, all of Leviticus, all of that is showing what it will take for an unholy people to dwell with a holy God. And that's why when we get to heaven and we see that one sitting on the throne, every time we look at him, what does it say he looks like? A lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Why is that? Because there will never be a moment in all of eternity. There will never be a moment in all of eternity that we're not reminded that we're only there because he died for us. Because he took what we couldn't do. He answered what we couldn't answer. He fulfilled what we couldn't fulfill. We're only there because he's there. So that lion, I love it in, John, in, in Revelation 5, in Revelation 5, behold, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. And when John looks, what does he see? A lamb slain. He doesn't see a lion, he sees a lamb. That lion is a lamb. That lamb is the lion, right? And why does he see a lamb? Because he's the one who died for you, John. He's the one who opened the seals. He's the one who did it all. He's the one who did it through his death. He's the where the wrath of God and the love of God has been on its clearest display. All those stories in the Old Testament were just brush strokes in a painting that ends up as Jesus Christ, glorious and redeemer. Moses, yeah, he was a good deliverer, but he was nothing like this deliverer. David, he was a good king. He was nothing like this king. All they were doing was pointing to the one that was coming. That's him. And as I've said before, going back to, to John Owen writing in the 16th century, and I love this imagery, as he said, if for some reason, if for some reason Jesus had to step outside of heaven for just one moment, we would all have to step out with him because we're only there on his credit and behalf. You see, the story of the Exodus is painting that picture of what Jesus will do finally and completely for us. It's pointing us to that. It's pointing us to that. This is the one who will reign forever, and his people will be with him on his holy mountain, prepared for them. He gets to verse 19. I love how it does this. The scriptures always elevate Ladies here, and when it does this, it says, For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Again, you see the response of Aaron and Moses' sister. 
leading the ladies out to sing. Y'all remember how this story started? This story started because Pharaoh felt like there was a threat amongst the Hebrews. There was a threat. And so, I'll tell you what let's do, Pharaoh said. Let's take the ladies, and every time they have a kid, a son, let's kill them and throw them in the river. That's how the story began. Remember that in Exodus chapter 1? Let's throw them in the river. And so the Hebrews ladies did what they knew to do. And it says they were, they were uh, strong and they would go out and have the kids without handmaidens because they didn't want the Egyptians to take their children. And they knew this. This all started because the ladies and the Israelites cried out for help. And remember what it says? The Lord heard their cry. And so isn't it fitting as we end really that Exodus period before they go into the wilderness, it ends with who? Dancing and singing with tambourine, the ladies. Rejoicing, for God heard their cry. In some ways, this is Miriam herself who took Moses as a little baby, pitched a little, a little basket, put him in the reeds and prayed that God would save him, Right? And now she stands and she sees Moses as the deliverer who's brought the people out. Who's brought the people out. Who God has heard us. And they rejoice. To those who cry out to the Lord and find the answer, there is great rejoicing. There's great rejoicing. And that's what we see here. It starts with the ladies crying out. It ends with the ladies singing and praising God with tambourine and dancing. In just that little bit, you have a microcosm, if you will, of salvation and redemption before our God. As every single story in this room began with you, if you're a child of God, began with you crying out to God to save you and forgive you. And it will end with you rejoicing, dancing, and singing with him in eternity as he wipes away every tear. That's how this story lays out for us. Now, we're getting ready to go into the wilderness. And before y'all get too excited about everything that happens, they start grumbling and complaining right away. But don't read that yet. Let's just be happy right now that they are singing with tambourine and rejoicing. Because God is faithful. God is faithful. The journey, as it goes, reminds us here that the Lord has made himself known. And he's made himself known for us in a greater way in a greater way than drowning the armies of Pharaoh. He's made himself known for us in a greater way than the plagues of Egypt. He's made himself known for us in a greater way than raising up a deliverer, Moses, to bring his people out. He's made himself known to us in a greater way than delivering from slavery and bondage of some, bondage of some country in this world like Egypt at this time. He's made himself known to us in a greater way because now, He's made himself known to us in his son, Jesus Christ. The one who didn't redeem us from the bondage and slavery of Egypt. He redeemed us from the bondage and slavery of sin. The one who didn't just save us from those things. He's not only saved us, he is bringing us home again to a place he's preparing for us. A greater promised land than they were going to even here. He's made himself known to us by demonstrating his wrath and pouring it out on an undeserving son because that son was a sacrifice in the place of his people. 
You see, when we talk about the God of the Old Testament versus the God of the New Testament, we oftentimes create dichotomies that are not there because the God of the New Testament is just as wrathful. The God of the New Testament is just as, brings just as much judgment. But what makes it incredible is that I would argue that he even ratchets up, ratchets up his wrath in the New Testament from the Old. Doesn't scale it back. He brings more. But in the New Testament, he pours it all out on his son who takes all of it, chews it up, spits it out, conquers it, and ends its reign completely. And then on the third day, he kicked the back end out the grave. Y'all know what I'm talking about. And rose victorious over it all. That's the deliverer I'm looking to. The one greater than Moses. And by the way, that's the one Moses was looking to too. That's what he was looking for. So as we read this story, kind of bringing the Exodus to a conclusion, we can rejoice today that just as they saw the salvation of God and they sang, we'll sing one day. We'll sing again. Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. Just as they rejoiced in what God has done, we too will rejoice one day, thanking God for who he is and what he has accomplished we too will do that. but We do it in an even greater way than this. For we do it with Christ Jesus, our Savior, the one who will reign forever. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your kindness to us and not only giving us these, uh, this progressive revelation of yourself in the Old Testament, but finally for us showing us the full and complete revelation of your Son, Jesus Christ. So help us to rejoice in him, to sing, Father, to sing in light of what Christ has done for us. Not only as we look in the past of how he saved us, not only we think about now and how he sustains us, but we think about the future and how he will be with us and we will be with him forever. God, may we sing and worship you. Father, help us. Help us in all of these things to trust in Christ Jesus all the more every day. For it's in his name we pray even now. Amen. Amen. Thank y'all so much. We'll see y'all Sunday.